resiliency within. With host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I'm your host, Elaine Miller Karras. Today's show is entitled Peace Over Violence, Movements Matter. And my guest is a colleague and a friend, Patty Giggins, who's been the executive director of Peace Over Violence since 1985. Maybe before some people who are listening were born, Patty, that could be that could be the case. So Peace Over Violence came into existence out of the feminist violence against women movement in the late 60s and early 70s. And this year, Peace Over Violence celebrates its 50th year. I'm just so impressed with that. POV operates the longest running sexual and domestic violence hotline in the country and are the originators of Denim Day movement. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that means, Denim Day, um, Patty, and the longest running sexual violence prevention campaign now in its 22nd year. So Patty Giggins will share her perspectives of why movements from civil rights to violence against women to disability and LGBTQI rights to the current Black Lives matter and me too matter and how they shape our national dialogue and influence social policy i want to tell you a little bit more about patty um she served on many local state and national advisory committees including the trauma resource institutes on several board of directors and is the former chair and current commissioner of the los angeles county sheriff's civilian oversight commission she's the founder of denim day has co-created violence prevention curricula and has co-authored several books including when dating becomes dangerous Dangerous. Giggins has received the California Peace Prize, the Angel of Peace Award, I think she's an angel myself, and 2016 Visionary Voice Award, and is a Durfee Foundation Stanton Fellow. Welcome, Patty. Um, as we start, I'm just wondering what is on your mind as we begin. Oh, uh, you know, what's on my mind today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Lynn. It's You are one of my favorite conversationalists. <laughs> stimulates so much creativity in my brain. Um, but you know what's on my mind today? When I stepped outside this morning, here it was in L.A., it was so beautiful. And it was spring, but just before we start to get the hot weather. And I just had a, you know, I thought, I'm glad I'm talking to Elaine because I'm having a peaceful moment and I want to share it with her. I'm honored. Peace is on my mind. Peace is on my mind. And here here you've been leading Peace Over Violence, um, this incredible organization for so many years. And I know we first met, um, your wife, Ellen, introduced us um, many years ago now. And we had some commonalities in our, I guess, our experience of wanting to provide healing modalities. I'm, we're both aware, we talked about it earlier today, that this is um, Mental Health Awareness Month. And, um, and Ellen is a licensed clinical social worker like myself. And we both, Patty, I think, believe in bringing ideas into the world, into community that are accessible, affordable, adaptable. 
And that's why one of the things I want to ask you first, one of the questions is, you know, the word resiliency right now is, is can be a controversial word, and yet it's a, also a very powerfully um, strong wor- word. Um, but I'm wondering if you could give us your definition of resiliency. What does that mean to you? Yeah. Well, yeah, resiliency, resilience and resiliency um, to me means the capacity to go beyond surviving. There's an element of thriving. There's an element of learning. There's an element uh, even of transcending, but it's also, it's physical, it's spiritual, you know, it's in the body, but it's in the spirit and our minds have a lot to do with it. Um, One of the things I think that's important to remember about resiliency, it doesn't mean that you haven't suffered. I think that's why folks sometimes say, oh, Everybody's talking about resiliency, but so much has happened, you know, we can't negate. And resiliency is not about negating trauma or suffering or circumstances. It's about surviving them, beginning to thrive and finding ways to suffer less at some point. And, you know, I couldn't agree more because I think if we if we do not acknowledge the suffering and even touch into it and sense it, then it's hard for us to start kind of it's almost like if we're we're cultivating a garden and if we didn't pay attention to their seasons in the garden and said oh there's only summer well that really wouldn't be true and it wouldn't really be about the natural way of of how in an organic way that that plants grow and then i think that we that we suffer but then there's there's something that comes out of the suffering and that's, I think, goes along the lines of my idea of what it means to kind of cultivate our well-being so that we can continue on and maybe even um, stronger and with more transformational insights than we had from before whatever the event may have been. So thank you for sharing. Well, you know, just let me add that one of the, uh, you, you could almost call it a motto for Buddhism is to be present for the joys and sufferings of the world. Yes. They go, it goes together. Yeah, not pleasant a lot of the times. Well, and, you know, I, but you know what? <laughs> suffering is is part of life. Is suffering part of- is part of life, and sometimes I wonder if we would appreciate joy in the same way if we didn't have the suffering. Exactly. So, so Patty, that kind of brings me into um, how has your lived experience, maybe your suffering, um, impacted your passion for the work that you do in the world? Well, that's a big question. I know it's a big question. I've been around the block a few times now. <laughs> no, because I, I know you're not 39 anymore. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, I feel so grateful that everything that's happened to me in my life, I've been able to redirect, to um, to give back, and to grow. You know, um, it's interesting that for me, I... You know, our topic is how movements matter. And, you know, what was really instrumental in my um, growth was when I was already working at this agency. We had a different name back then. And uh, we worked with on sexual assault, on domestic violence, on child sexual abuse and youth violence prevention. That's that's our mission. Um, And so in the early days of when I began working uh, with POV, we would talk about what happened to us 
it's just part of the conversations. It was intentional, but, you know, staff would, would talk. It was it was part of the DNA of the organization for us to kind of be vulnerable with one each with one another. And you think and, that vulnerability is also about witnessing like yes. for the first time people were talking about stories that had been long hidden. Right. So here I was, I taken this job, I'm working at Peace Over Violence, working on domestic violence, and I had never really talked about how I had witnessed domestic violence as a child in my family. And that my stepfather um, was abusive to my mother and it really destroyed our family. I left home when I was 15, never to live with my mother again because of all of that. But here I was an adult and uh, in my, you know, movement professional career and I had never talked about it and actually didn't, I was working, you know, on behalf of victims, but didn't see myself as part of that in that way, lived experience. And what happened was our movement, and this is where I think it's so important, our movement started to actually include witnessing domestic violence, witnessing children, witnessing domestic violence. So once our movement started to talk, because I didn't, I was never battered. So I, you know, I, I personally directly wasn't abused but I was in this environment, right? And I witnessed this as my brother did. And until the movement started talking about it and pointing to it, that's when it was like, oh, that's me. That's my part. And it was a revelation. And so again, when I feel like movements do that, we do things on, movements do things on big scales, but they do things on the individual scale also. Well, I think it's so interesting too, because here you were working with Peace Over Violence and you you were actually, um, yet you were called to work in this kind of organization. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so many things that we do with that necessarily intentionality, almost an unconscious calling that this is an important thing. And then all of a sudden the dots are connected. And I think, you know, for our listeners, it's so important to pay attention to that. You know, I, I realize that many people of different ages listened, listen to us. And I mean, I think for me, if you would have said, oh, Lane, one day you're going to be a radio talk host and you're going to run a non international nonprofit, I said, oh, that doesn't sound like me, right? <laughs> you know, do, do, did we know then what we know now, right? That, that the journey of life leads us in twists and turns to what we end up becoming. But it's the becoming, in my experience, it's not that there's an end point that we're all becoming. And even though we're older women, we've had a lot of lived experience, we're still becoming on this journey. And I, that I'll, to me is profound. Always, I I'll always that. be grateful to the anti-violence against women movement for a lot of things, but for including me yes. and people like me. And then I could include, then I could include that in my work and include others. And we've done that. We do that. Movements do that. And movements started small because I remember talking to you when I was very small with the Trauma Resource Institute. And you said, oh, Lane, there were like four people that were in the organization. And now there's well over four people in Peace Over Violence. I'm happy to say there's well over one person in Trauma Resource Institute as well. But I think that that stick to And also sometimes I think there's something about being a woman and that feminist perspective. And we, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about pioneering feminism and what does that mean? And I know that's embedded in the, the roots of, of the peace over violence. 
Yes, our organization was started by pioneering feminists. That's what we call them, because this was in the late 60s, early 70s, when the civil rights and the rights era, it's the rights era of our country, civil rights, LGBTQ rights, disability rights, women's rights. Um, and it was these feminists who were starting to think about well, there were a lot of there was consciousness raising groups early on in the feminist movement. And a lot of women were talking to each other about their lives. And, and in fact, it's really funny. I remember um, that one person uh, let me know back in the day. They said, you know, I'm in this consciousness raising group and we were talking about our lives. And some of us felt that we were all married to the same man because of the habits and you know and also some of it was about violence that was happening within those relationships yeah. and that there was so much silence because people oh, exactly. were the only one and and even the silence of being a witness and not realizing that being a witness to violence does something to us and right. of course we know that through neuroscience the vicarious trauma and how there's actually changes in the brain that happen yeah. but this these were conversations in the beginning we didn't have the the framework of the neuroscience that we have now and so i just i think it's really important that the bravery and courage that many women had and you know people say to me well sometimes the word feminism can also be weaponized and to me i'm going to tell you what my definition of feminism and it's like it's the perspectives perspectives of women matter and that we have a different vista than um, than men. And I'm not sure how the non-binary movement, you know, in terms of how people identify, but I also want to just say that I think it's important that we acknowledge that as well, because there's a whole perspective that I've been learning about people non-binary and how they also have been put into certain buckets that haven't been their lived experience. So I imagine that we're going to expand because that's also, I think, a movement that's coming forward oh, that we're all being changed by as we learn what people's experiences have been. So I think Patty is, you know, it's just you've just said this much. I mean, that so much of think of what you've done is about helping have people have a platform to be able to speak and be witnessed. And I know I've been to some of your functions where I'm in tears when people tell their story, but really from this kind of strength-based perspective. And that, that brings me to people may not know that you're you're not a tall person. How tall are you? I just want to Four eleven and three quarters. Okay, and I want you all to know that you're you're a black belt in martial arts. Isn't that true? And can you illuminate? I think because that's part of your incredible journey. Um, the spots of enlightenment, enlightenment when you were in Paris, because you shared with me about being one in ninety nine that connects to this journey. Let us know a little bit more about that, so that listeners. Let me, know. Let me put a little context before Paris. Sure, absolutely. Paris is. Um, yeah, so all this, so so this really, you know, Patty Giggins really becoming educated as a feminist, um, late '60s, early '70s. That was the era, um, and I was uh, living and working in New York. And at, at at some point, I got married, and it was really interesting because so much was going on in the politics, almost like today. There is a, a similarity. You know, so much engagement and excitement and learning of new things and new history. That's when women started to learn. We started to learn our history, you know, through that time. And so what happened, I was and it, I was um, really connected to the anti-Vietnam uh, War movement and I was um, protesting the war. 
and um, among other things, and was in consciousness raising groups. And I was being a caseworker at the city of New York social services department. And and it's really interesting because because of um, my marriage, um, my husband at the time was uh, a journalist and was asked to go to Vietnam to be a war correspondent. So we went. So I went from protesting the war in Vietnam, in New York City, to actually living in downtown Saigon. Now, this is 1970, 71, 72, right? And what an experience. And I was reflecting recently about how um, how I've matured and how I really try to consider all sides of something and all the ingredients of the situation. But when I was younger, I mean, I thought I was right. I mean, I... I thought I had the answer. But war, there was there was no other story. We, 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 I was against the war. We shouldn't be there. You know, never should have happened. And we need to get out now. So well, when you I, lived in Saigon, it brought yes, living, exactly. I'm living in Saigon, and I'm meeting uh, Vietnamese people from all walks of life, and I'm seeing the more complexity. You know, the complexity. And do you think that that perspective of seeing the complexity about the Vietnam War and the movement that you were involved in and then seeing what it was like to lit that's now imbued your ideas into the other movements that you're involved in in terms of not seeing the one road? Once I started to acknowledge that to myself, that I don't have all the answers and that there's not necessarily one right way to do something um, and that it's important to be open and to receive and to see and look at all the ingredients, all the sides and not have from a place of, uh, of rigidity that there's no other side and only my opinion matters or this only one opinion matters. And once I, that was a profound experience, you know, and I was young then and uh, it's, it stayed with me. It stayed with me. And when I start to get a little rigid or a little confirmed in my view, I remind myself what else are you not seeing? What information do you not have? And I, and I often say when I'm trying to explore something, I say, well, what else could be true besides right. this? Else right. What else could be true? And so is that where you first got interested in, in martial arts was when you were living in Vietnam? Yes. Well, I, part of it was I wanted to take a self-defense class when I was being a caseworker in New York City, you know, to protect myself, to do my job. And I took a couple of classes. And then when I went to, then I started, I think I want to do a martial art, but then we left the country. So I started training in Taekwondo in Vietnam. And then from there, we moved to Paris. And so in Paris, I continued my studies and training in Japanese martial arts. And I was the only woman um, in the school uh, of my sensei. Sensei is teacher, right? My karate teacher. And I was always only the woman, or women would come and they'd leave after one or two classes. So my instructor, um, my, my sensei said to me, said, why don't you teach a class on Saturday just for women. He gave me this idea. This idea came from a man. <laughs> Patty, why don't you teach a class on, on Saturdays? And maybe more women will be exposed and want to do martial arts. Because I, I was so keen on it. I wanted to share it with other women. It changed my life, you know. Um, and so that's what happened. I got, then I got my black belt. And then I went to, through a program at the University of Paris, their sportif section, um, it was a one-year program to get a certification in teaching martial arts. And I was one of 99 men. I was the only woman that went through this 
this program, you know? And so it was, it was heavy lifting, you know, being, I was one of the first women to get a black belt. Uh, and then when I came back to the United States, I came back to the United States with this idea of opening my own karate school. I mean, it was a cockamamie idea, right? But well, I did it, but and, I did it. And I you did it. Los and, Angeles and I did it. And, it and you then, did it. And it was, was it directed for all people or did, was it directed it was for, women? for women, but all kinds of women. So it wasn't the, just the athlete. And it was for, we had fat women, we had skinny women, we had women, you know, we had queer women, we had young women, we had older women, and it was amazing. And again, it was, we were a feminist martial arts school. And right around it, I was doing that around the country. You talk about the collective unconscious. There were schools similar to ours opening up around the country in San Francisco and New York and Chicago. Um, and so that was another period of, I like these little periods of little en- enlightenments, you know, well, um, and, and, and women in the martial arts. I was, uh, you know, I participated in that organization first time ever women in the martial arts. It was like, it's, it was, it was really different. It was pretty radical, but we kept finding each other. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like you've been a pioneer in more than one area. <laughs> from talking to you, Patty. But, but you know, we also talked about your spiritual path and how did the martial arts influence your spiritual path? Well, you know, I really did. I mean, I practiced martial arts pretty regularly for, you know, almost daily for 20 years, right? And one of the reasons I wanted to learn the martial arts was because I never wanted to hurt someone by accident. Mm. I wanted to defend myself, but I never wanted to actually inflict pain or hurt someone else by accident that if I did it, I had to do it on purpose with skill and control and with mindfulness, with mindfulness, an intentional practice, intentional. Yes. And from that, you know, I got, I did get interested in, uh, um, in, uh, all things Japanese <laughs> and you know martial arts and Zen and um, little by little that led me to um, practice Zen Buddhism. So, so from this and and you were explaining to me a little bit about this journey, but as part of this journey, you said that there were some questions that emerged and it was so connected again to your spiritual path and what you had learned in your lived experience through martial arts and other aspects of your life. And there, there were questions like, is there a right of not being beaten by your partner because you're a female, a child? Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that connects, that connects, am I wanting to teach self-defense to women and to children? Um, uh, so that they learned how to protect themselves. Um, It really does link to the whole civil rights and and the feminist movement of what rights are there for women and children to not be harmed in these ways by their close-in relationships. You know what I mean? Because we're not just talking about strangers when it comes to these kinds of harms and violences. You know, we're talking about intimate partners. We're talking about family members. We're talking about acquaintances. We're talking about people who work together. You know, most uh, uh, violence and abuse comes from people that know each other. You know, this is a human dilemma, a human issue, a human tragedy that we are, obviously we need to continue to to work on. Um, but I got that question is, right. we have the right as women, do we have the right as women to not be 
to be beaten or to be sexually assaulted or to be raped or to be diminished in any way. Do we have a right to enter the workplace and to be able to do our jobs without being sexually harassed? Can we walk down this? Certainly, we're talking about movements again. I mean, the Me Too movement, we've seen, especially all over the country, all over the world. But in Los Angeles, that certainly has been a very powerful movement. But I'm just also wanting to come back to a little bit to POV. How did these questions lead you to work with Peace Over Violence? Um, Well, you know, actually, the way I got um, engaged with the organization is that they came and found me at my karate school and asked me if I would help them with their self-defense program. So that, so I started to, as a volunteer, and then um, I was a volunteer on the hotline, and then I was helping them teach their, uh, then, I, then I, I was a consultant for a while, and then I got hired on as the director of training and the self-defense manager. Um, and little by little, I was all in. And we were only five or six or seven of us at that time, you know, and now we're 75. 78 employees now with uh, almost a $5 million budget that I'm in charge of making sure we raise every year. So it, it led me to so many other dimensions of being a grown up, you know, just by my getting involved. <laughs> well, I, you know, and when you well. say that, I want people to know about Denim Day because you, that was something that you co founded. And I know that one time you even went to um, France for Denim Day. I remember you Italy, went to Italy, to Italy rather. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes. Denim Day, which we just had our 22nd uh, annual Denim Day uh, in April um, uh, this year, Denim Day 2021. Uh, it's, it is a campaign that um, was inspired by a Supreme Court judge in Italy who overturned a lower court's rape conviction. Um, saying that the um, young woman, uh, I think she was 18 at the time, the young woman was wearing tight jeans. Therefore, she probably had to help this guy take off her jeans. Therefore, it wasn't raped. Rape, it was consensual sex. So this was about the tight jeans, right? So right away, there was an uproar in Italy and the um, female parliamentarians posed a uh, protest wearing jeans. They called it the jeans alibi on the steps of the of the court. And that spread uh, to Sacramento, where in California in Sacramento, our assembly members and senators saw that on TV and they wore jeans in solidarity with the Roman parliamentarians. And I saw that. I saw that like one, you know, from one day to the next, I followed this news story and I thought, oh my goodness, this is an opportunity. We all should be wearing jeans on purpose to not only protest the what she's wearing myth, but all the myths about that justify or excuses why someone is assaulted or raped. And 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 so we started it at our agency and it's spread and now it's national and international. People just do their own denim day now. I just want to call to everyone's attention. Notice the spark, the spark of seeing something, <laughs> seeing the connections and then saying, well, we can start something. This is also what movements are about, because again, you don't we don't know what is going to happen as the idea is sparked that 22 years later, that it would be an international event 
and that you would one day go to Italy in terms of having seen this and being a part of the acknowledgement of your work. Well, We're you know, it's interesting when you say about the spark, I mean, because um, for me, you know, I feel like I'm a I'm a movement baby. I grew up in movements. I mean, I've been yes. so influenced. The civil rights movement influenced me as a kid dramatically. Right. And then I'm wanting to do martial arts. And so I'm part of then the women in the martial arts movement. And at the same time, of course, I'm, I'm a feminist. And so it's women's rights and women free from violence. And, you know, and then it's like really moving, moving on to Me Too and all these profoundly, these movements are profound. Well, and I think that as you say that, I mean, I want, uh, we need to take a little pause for our break, but I want to talk more about this when we come back, because you have been what I call a natural leader. We didn't, you didn't know it was going to happen. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means and a little bit more about movements. Um, so stay with us, listeners. Patty Giggins will be back with us after the break, and she will illuminate us with her spark. And I know there's more sparks in your future, Patty. I can see it in your face. So there you go. So we will be back in, uh, in, a, in a couple minutes. And this is Elaine Miller-Karis, uh, Resiliency Within on Voice of America. And we will take a short pause. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are now back with Patty Giggins, and she's going to continue to illuminate us about her perspectives about the world and how she sparks movements and how she believes in movements. But I want to say a little bit more that I believe, Patty, that you're a natural leader and that natural leaders emerge in movements. It was not what someone set out to do, like we were talking about earlier, but it's almost your compassionate action as a reaction to a lived experience. And so my definition of a natural leader are individuals who may or may not have a formal education or designated leadership role, but are looked to for guidance because of their embodied personal qualities. And this is the important part of treating others with respect, compassion, and empathy. And they also share their wisdom and equanimity in a way that encourages and empowers their community. And I just want to acknowledge you because I think you're that kind of person. So can you illuminate us a little bit more about kind of how the embodied natural leader that you are and how that came to be? And tell us more about that. Mm. Well, thank you for that definition of a natural leader that's uh and complimenting me with that <laughs> I, I believe it as you yeah, i don't i don't know how now you know i mean it's interesting about different times in my life when i've had to step up when i've had to use my voice for myself or on behalf of others i've always you know taking it as an advocate you know you use your voice your your personhood your privilege your position your knowledge on behalf of others uh, and I think that's an, just as an important part of the way I try to live my life. Um, and jo- it's, a com- it's a way to join with others, too. So then you're not alone. See, I think that's the, with, with, with leaders, I think, I don't think we don't, I don't think we want to be alone, <laughs> you know, like the Lone Ranger yeah. leader. Um, that's why for, for me, um, cooperation, collaboration is so important. You know, I, I just, I, I, I mean, I do write poetry alone, but so many things that I do, I usually do in groups, you know, and probably um, my wife, Ellen, calls me a family addict. Uh, she says that I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm with, I like to be with people, you know. Um, so I think my, um, maybe my leadership has been a self-serving thing. I, you know, I didn't want, I don't want to be lonely or alone. So I get out there and find people to do things, start campaigns, invent things with me. Um, well, and I think that's <laughs> like when you talk about, you know, you've built community and that's what I've seen from you from the first moment that I met you. And I think that you work, I've seen you work from the bottom up that also brought you into the top down world, right? And you're on the police commission. I mean, my goodness, that's a, that's, that's a honorable role and one that you do have some impact on what happens in our community. And I know that you've collaborated with law enforcement and that's been an important uh, collaboration. Do you think you can talk a little bit about that? Because when you started, when there was only five, six, seven of you, you may not have had the same collaboration with law enforcement that you have now. Yeah. So how have you, how have you, how have you sparked that? Well, this to- is one of the most timely conversations that uh, we're having 
that we need to be having. And it's a, you know, our relationship to law enforcement in our country. And, and um, Peace Over Violence, which had a different name back in the day, we were known as the Los Angeles Commission on Assaults Against Women, LACAW. We were a reaction to law enforcement, particularly to LAPD. Those pioneering feminists started this organization because of the way LAPD treated uh, rape and domestic violence victims. And uh, so then over the years from that reaction, um, you know, we started to collaborate more, training them and also being the advocates. If there is a, a domestic violence call, we're the advocates. We're not the only ones because now it's part of the, the whole system that we have where you have staff and volunteer advocates trained in domestic violence to be able to be there with the survivors and help them um, navigate healing, navigate the criminal justice system if they chose, so choose to go through that. Um, so it's a, you know, law enforcement, it's a very big deal. And so, yes, we've collaborated and we've been critical throughout throughout these fifty years, um, and the and at um, at this juncture right now, um, at this period of, of racial reckoning in our country, um, everyone is looking at you know where do we go from here? You know how do we make it better? Since there are abuses, there are. Um, um, systemic abuses that have happened with law enforcement and the criminal justice system. And it's a critical, it's a critical, uh, critical so do you see peace over violence being involved in the dialogue with um, law enforcement about what you call as the reckoning that we've seen all over the country? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, we people talk about alternatives to law enforcement. People talk about alternatives to incarceration. You know, we actually provide that function because our advocates we go where a domestic violence survivor or a sexual assault or rape victim, where they want to go. If they, want, if they feel that they want to go through the system, the criminal justice system, report to law enforcement, you know, press charges, all of that, we will do that with them as their advocates. We will accompany them and we will try to ha- help them make informed decisions by making sure they get good information. But if they choose not to go through that, which many do not choose, we are there for the the, the, the healing, the counseling, the support, all the services, the support groups, you know, so, for you know, I think triggering I, moments when you right. call our hotline and someone, some yes. skillful person will be able to um, talk with you. Well, so We're I think that's an important also. So I think that's an important an important part that I would like to amplify is that if people were to call um, a domestic violence organization anywhere in the country, but I think Peace Over Violence, you've been a leader in this, is that there are some people that it's for whatever reason, could be financial, it could be many, any reasons, that they choose not going to leave that person in the lurch, that there are services that you can still provide and that they can have a, a, uh, a segue into conversations when they need to, like you said, counseling and things like this. There's not a requirement, oh, you have to lose, leave the abusive partner in order to get services here. We are there to support you and to help you create a safer environment for yourself and your family. And what we've been doing a lot through this pandemic with uh, DV victims who've been calling us is kind of guiding them how to stay because they can't leave. 
There right. were no, no shelters. Shelters were, were full and closed. There were not a lot of movement because we we're quarantining. And so a lot of the guidance had to do was like really listening. And this is what we do. We listen to hear what the issues are. What's the dilemma? What is this person trying to figure out for themselves and support them? And so talking about safety in place, that's what's been going on for this past year when it comes to domestic violence. So you had to change your, I mean, who knew what we were gonna be dealing with a pandemic? So, um, so people were given ideas on how to be safer in their home. And often they have ideas. See, that's the thing. It's we're not necessarily originating the ideas. It's that they're they're grappling. Should I do this? Should I do that? We're a sounding board. We're good listeners. We reflect back. Oh, it seems like what you're really wanting to do now is make sure that you at least go in the backyard for and don't go do gardening and get away from the situation and have some space. You want to create space daily so that you can keep you know the tensions down. Sounds like that's what you're. It's part of your safety plan. So we, you know, we we kind of want to reflect back on what their ideas already are, and also give them some other other ways to think about it. Well, in this um, case, that's me- been a whole year, whole year of safety in place. Safety in place. And so I'm going to ask you a little bit because one of the ways that we met was that um, back when we first started with the community resiliency model. Um, you came to, to me, you and an organization down in San Diego, and said, could you provide training in this body-centered model? Now, are you still using the community resiliency model within Peace Over Violence? And if so, can you, give, can you illuminate how it's being used? Uh, for example, is it used on calls to help people with skills, or is it used by the staff? What kinds of things might you be doing with this? Well, we train in the community resiliency model. We're a big training organization. Every staff person who works with us and every volunteer, they have to go through an 80-hour training. And within that, it's about more than you ever want to know about domestic and sexual assault, right? Um, And counseling and listening, how to be a good listener, all of that, the dynamics. um, And part of that is we train in CRIM, the community resiliency model, because it is something that anyone can do. Children can use it. Parents can teach it to their children, right? Um, So our volunteers go through it in the training. Our staff goes through it. And yes, you can do it on the telephone, as you know. Yes. (laughs) You taught us how to do it. Yes, I did teach you how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's always interesting to me. It's definitely part and parcel of of POV and and everything that we do. And the other day, I wound up using it on the phone with one one of my staff members who is at a point on, you know, we're all quarantining, we're still working remotely. And some of us are hitting the wall right now, about now, you know, and want to, you know, get back out there. Um, but I, I use it on the phone recently, you know, I, um, and so it's, it's definitely part and parcel. That was so fortuitous that, you know, that POV was able to find you. Um, and with our collaborative agency in San Diego, um, we were able to find some money to actually develop our triumph, our resilience, our trauma and resiliency program. You know, we expanded and deepened the trauma work that we were doing um, before we found Crim. Well, and I felt very honored because we had just finished our pilot because it was 2013. It was a long, it was when right. we were first starting. That's nine years, um, eight years ago now. So it's wonderful to see that it's still, it's still been living and doing well. Yeah. Well, and you know I, what my staff calls it? What? They call it crimming. 
Crimming. Oh, it's now. I love that it's a verb. Crimming. Okay, we're gonna do some crimming. <laughs> we're gonna do some crimming. <laughs> I think such and such should do some crimming. <laughs> I love that. I just love that, Patty. But you know, I think that's kind of bringing me because you know you do so much in the world. Just you know, I I've seen you in action. I've been to POV, and you know, you you have so much spunk. And then I know you've suffered too. So what are the things in your life that have helped you get through? What's uplifted you? What's given you courage? What's a person, a place, a thing? What are the things that enliven you to help you get through the difficult times in your life? Oh, many things. I think I'm like, I need, I, I would say I have a smorgasbord of things. You know, oh, I love me. that. So can you tell, share some with us? <laughs> yeah, Maybe well, for example, my relationships really matter to me. My family, my friend, my colleague relationships. Um, I, enjoy, I enjoy them and depend on them. You know, so relationships really matter. And um, the fact that I have um, a pretty active spiritual life through my Zen Buddhism, you know, I was raised Catholic and uh, I'm, I consider myself Jewish adjacent. Um, you know, I love that. What does Jewish adjacent mean? <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a Jew myself, but I'm married to a Jew. I raised my, you know, we raised our, our, um, our daughter um, Jewish and we have our Prague, we have our Friday, you know, Shabbats. And yet we celebrate Christmas in our house and, and we go to the Zen center of Los Angeles and have our teachings and our meditations. And so it's um, yeah, those, all those things are really, really important to me. Um, my work is, you know, as, as much as work can be a burden at times, work is also a solace because I have a purpose. Yeah. I have a purpose. And so purpose matters also, you know. Um, but friendships, uh, collegial friendships, um, I love learning new things. I love learning and adding things to the menu, you know, of, uh, of my life. And um, I like, I enjoy writing poetry, reading and writing poetry. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with writing in general. You know, it's like I hate. Well, you have a. I mean, smorgasbord is the right term. (laughs) Now, I'm also thinking one of the people that you've told me about in your life was your dad, and that he had a restaurant, if I if I recall correctly. Can you just just say a little bit about that? Because I'm I'm wondering about how that influenced you being in a restaurant when you're. Yeah, I grew up grew up in an Italian restaurant. My um, my brother and I, and then um, subsequent my two sisters. We all grew up in in my father's restaurant, Goldie's restaurant on Long Island. Um, and uh, you know, you learn a lot in the restaurant business. First of all, you learn how to work hard. And you have long hours and you work nights often, right? So it's it's not and easy. And you haven't done any of that with Peace Over Violence. Worked hard. Worked uh, yeah, right. <laughs> nights, right? I, I'm just seeing the connection here. Okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and so so you learn a lot. You know, so why people who, um, I, 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 you know, people who say, well, I'm an actor, but I'm also a waitress or a waiter. It's like, you're working hard. I know you are. <laughs> but so, you know, it's like with my dad is being able to um, look. One of the things my dad taught me, though, I think is um, he would remember he was amazing. He was a great host. He would remember the, uh, the families that would come in and they would ask about, you know, well, how's your grandfather doing? Or, you know, is it your son seven years old now? I mean, he would remember these things about people's lives. I don't have that kind of memory that he has, but he was a member. So he would be he would be like this official greeter and welcome people to the restaurant. But one thing he taught me, he said, Patty, he said, you know, people are never appreciated enough. Mm. 
And so that's what he did in the restaurant. He would remember people. He remembered what they ordered. He said, oh, yeah, you like your lasagna without meat, you know, or, something, you know, or you want you don't want olives on your salad. I mean, he would remember that about me. And that was his way of. Of you know, he used to say, "Love is in the food." That was my love is in the food. Love is in the food, and my for my dad, love was in the restaurant. You that, and later on, when I moved away and went to college and lived in other countries and moved to LA and never really lived in New York again, right? The restaurant was where you wanted to see my dad. You went to Goldie's restaurant. That's where you saw him. That was his life. He died just short of 90. No, he did. He, no, he did. He was 90. He, we had a big celebration for him, but he died running his restaurant at 90. I love that. And I still want to say people are never appreciated. Yes, enough. people are never appreciated. Enough. And when I, I think about that. And I think about natural leaders. I always love to see those threads of connection from your dad to you and how you spread that into the world. And I guess I want to, can we just segue back a little, we have just a, we have a little bit of time left, but um, so when you talk about your lived experience and how, how does this, the, the movements matter to you? Why do you think movements are important to humanity? I really heard that from you. Movements are important to humanity. They are. Movements are important to humanity and to transformation and to progress. Right? And uh, I think part of it is that it, movements can communicate at a level where a lot of people can hear it, hear the issues. And then usually there are easy ways to join, even if the first way you join is you show up at a protest march. I mean, movements are way beyond protest march. That's just a part of movement. Movement is really about, movements you often are about educating, uh, inviting participation, and including people, and really listening to people's voices and bringing the best movements can bring these seem like disparate voices and make some cohesion out of them, you know, and which eventually can influence policy and practices. And so when you think about, you know, there's people maybe listening to this show that say, well, I have an idea. I'm feeling very passionate about something. Your advice would be to bring the people together and start having dialogue. What would be your advice to them beyond that? Most movements started in somebody's living room. You know, you saw you get from your backyard. People start talking to each other about, you know, something that they really care deeply about. And then they find out that they are not alone, that there are others who care deeply. Well, the key about movements is that, um, of course, you have like these natural people because they've experienced it. They've maybe experienced sexual assault. They've experienced racism. They experienced um, being persecuted because they're gay or lesbian or queer, right? Or they have disabilities. So you have that. But the key is when, when movements are really successful and when they go beyond the actual um, people themselves who, ex- who have the lived, the exact lived experience, and convincing others. Others who maybe don't have that, but are willing to listen, learn, maybe walk in that walk in that movement's shoes, in a sense. Because it doesn't take as many people. This is what I always think is so interesting about movements. You may have a small group of people, but that small group of people, when they're organized, when they're committed, it can change the many. And you may not realize that in the beginning. And I'm thinking about all the movements that you and I are probably, you know, when we started marching against the war in Vietnam, we didn't know that that was going to have an impact of ending the war because, but it did. 
Um, and yet we did it because we saw young people dying and we didn't know why we were in that war. For the And many of us were like, we wanted peace rather than war. So, but we don't know what the outcome is. So I just wanna encourage people that if you're out there with an idea, you know, gather the people together. I think of even the Trauma Resource Institute. People said to me in the beginning, Elaine, I think this is a movement. I said, I always was a little bit, ah, I don't know for a movement. But now I can, okay, <laughs> Jennifer Burton listens to this. She says, See, I told you it was a movement because I've seen where we have spread well being to communities throughout the world. But I've also seen you do that with Peace Over Violence because it may have been that spark of Rome, Sacramento. Los Angeles, you see the little triangle there, and then it starts to spread. And you know what's really interesting now, I think what we're seeing is movement. Movements. Yes. That is so powerful. So can you talk a little bit, give us an example of, one of, one of what, what you mean by well, that? Well, I would say the most, the most recent um, for me is when people who, well, like the most recent uh, acknowledgement of how much how many how many hate crimes there are against Asian, yes, uh, Pacific Islanders, Asian Americans, you know that's come out throughout the pandemic, and the uh, the oppression and the actual attacks, the hate, the hatred that's coming out, and to see that many of us who support Black Lives Matter are also paying attention to that, yes, and that even. Um, when, when I think of Denim Day and sexual uh, sexual violence that we're looking at, well, it impacts this community a little bit differently. You know, it really does impact black women differently than white women and other groups. And so when you start to make these connections, I think, you know, it's an often used term right now, intersectionality, but it is such an important concept. And that means we, it goes back to my original thing that when I started to learn that you need to have a big mind because you have to see all the ingredients. Well, now we have to have a big mind. Our minds and our hearts have to get so big that we can be so inclusive that we are seeing the inter intersectionality of all of these issues. I just have to do a shout out to Kimberly Crenshaw for coining that, that term, because I think that intersectionality, when we think of you know, each one of us, if we were to say, well, where are, what are your intersections? Right. Um, and that once we start paying attention to that, then I can see how we can also come together and maybe bind us in, in, in very human ways, rather than being so separate and siloed to see those interconnections as well yeah. that happen. It's, it's so important for the, for this, the um, not only the moment we're in, but to get to that next moment where we, um, you know, we can't, someday we cannot have anybody at the margins. That's what we have to work And wouldn't for. that be wonderful if one day we could say that? That's There's what no we have one to work for, no one in the margins, no one left out. Well, and I think- so, I mean, if, our, at, at, at Peace Over Violence, we're looking toward a world where you know, no wife is abused, no child sexually assaulted, no kid goes hungry, right? Um, and people can be safer and live very talented and um, 
creative lives. Well, that's what we're working for. That's yeah. what we're working well, for. Well, Patty, I think you've done some of that. I think you've done it. You know, I mean, I think there's always more work to do. But if you think about 50 years ago, where peace over violence was and where we were as a country, and to think about now there's advocates at police stations, and that that the awareness of domestic violence and child abuse is so much more known. And the, and the interventions that are happening are collaborative in many places. It's not perfect, but the collaboration has been awe-inspiring. And, you know, we have to go from awareness to prevention because that's going to be the key. At one point, are we going to have less violence? That I- has to be... Yes, that has to be the goal, because, you know, we can continue to be aware. And it's so important because it's primary, you know, Um, and we have to develop systems that really function with well-being as part of what they're after. Right. Um, You're you're speaking in my language. (laughs) I know where crim comes in and and that's right. You're doing um, that. We again, the intersectionality of our work and your work. Um, But we have to real. That's where I'm feeling frustration. Because, you know, I've been a preventionist my whole life, but what am I preventing here? We're not preventing enough. It's still happening. (laughs) I've been thinking about this lately because I've been sitting in some legislative committees where they've told us, well, you know, they're not really interested in prevention. They're really interested in something else. I go, if we can't be interested in prevention, how are we going to stop it? But I think maybe that's Maybe that's the next phase after awareness, Patty. And I'm as I'm seeing that our time is slipping away, it's been so lovely to have you as a guest. I wanted to ask you um, if there is just a parting thought, one parting thought that you would like to leave our guests with today. Hmm. Well, I always come back to um, that healing is possible. Yes. I think it's, so I think healing, it's possible. Yeah, healing is possible. It's possible for individuals. It's possible for families. It's possible for communities. But we have to own that. Yes, we have to own that. And if people really want, believe that and work and, and work, work towards work it, toward that, you know, and have and we need to have a very big mind to understand that violence prevention is also about the quality of healthcare, the quality of education, right? The quality of our air and our climate and living on our planet, you know, that people have enough to eat. That all of that goes toward. Yes. violence prevention. That's what's going to prevent somebody from beating up his wife. And so, Patty, thank you so much for that parting thought. And I just want everyone to know that you can reach Patty through peaceoverviolence.org. Thank you, our listeners. Um, remember what is true in your life and how you can be that spark. Until next time, this is Resiliency Within and Elaine miller Karras is signing off. Thank you, Patty Giggins. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.